Well, one of the things that I quite enjoy doing, perhaps, you know, at a cafe or, you know, while sitting around waiting somewhere, is to, is to people watch. And it's fascinating to, to watch uh, different groups of people and, and how they interact with each other. Uh, you'll often see groups of teenagers all kind of walking around in, in this, you know, blob together. Uh, up at, you know, certainly up at Coles before school starts, they, they were all there getting their, their snacks. Uh, and they're, they're walking around together. You'll see um, elderly people often, you know, just often by themselves. And they might look askance at that mob of young people. You'll see people, um, you know, clear family groups that, that, are, that are walking together. But what you rarely see is all these groups kind of coming together. What you rarely see is some kind of bond or connection uh, spontaneously arising for them. The exception is if you're at something like a, you know, like a football game or, or something like that where, where there's this then common um, motivation to come together. Well, that's one of the things that the church offers to the world, that in all of our differences, all of our variety, that we come together united around Christ. And this makes us actually a compelling community because there is more that would naturally keep us apart than what would bring us together. And so there's this thing about it that then would point us and would point others looking on to Jesus and to the gospel that has brought us together. That's what we're going to see today as we come to the last in our series in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, This is our our last for the year and we'll we'll finish Acts off next year. In Acts 16, we find Paul and his companions. He's he's got Timothy and Silas at least with him. And they are in the city of Philippi. But before we we look at this, I just want to uh, track the trajectory of the book up to this point. To, to locate this story in, in the overall story. So the book of Acts opens with Jesus' commission to his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the Spirit comes down upon them and the Jews from all over the place, they hear this gospel message spoken in their own languages. And so then the church flourishes as they continue to meet in homes and in the temple in Jerusalem. But this new movement of of Jesus followers is at this point seen as little more than kind of a splinter group of Jews, a splinter um, sect, if you like, within Judaism. It takes persecution for these followers of the way of Jesus to move outside of the city, to move beyond the walls of Jerusalem and to now take the gospel wherever they go. And that includes to an Ethiopian eunuch who is by the side of the road. Then Peter has a dream in preparation of being called to go to a Roman centurion's home. And there he preaches Jesus, they respond, and the Spirit comes on them just as he had come upon the Jewish believers. Paul is then radically converted. And he starts then his missionary journeys. He goes from a a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of Jesus. Wherever he goes, he preaches to the Jews first. But then when they uh, seem to come to that point of rejecting him and his message, he then goes to the Gentiles and they respond to it, which, which prompts then you know, a controversy 
about whether these Gentile believers need to convert not only to Christ but also to Judaism. And so there is a church council that um, happens in response to this controversy and and this question. And they meet back in Jerusalem. And and as this council meet, they recognise the ways that God has been working to make the faith open to all people, including the Gentiles. And so then Paul begins another trip. He revisits places where he's already gone to to pass on the the news that has come from this council to say that they are free to continue following Christ as they are. As well as then, he continues to go to new places to reach out to others. Now that, that very quick journey through the book of Acts shows us that Christianity is a faith that is open to all. Jesus' commission was not to keep it just with the Jews. His commission was not to stay just in Jerusalem. But his commission was to take this message out to all the world. There's, there's then no special entry criteria, be that Jewishness or anything else, but that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what we see in Acts 16. We also see, though, that not only is the Christian faith open to all and inclusive of them, but so is to be the local expression of the church, that it too is to be open and inclusive, that it's, as I've said earlier, to be a compelling community. And so let's dive in. Starting from verse 6, we see Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, being prevented by the Holy Spirit from going into Asia. Likewise, they, you know, they, they attempt to get into Bithynia, And there the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go either. Finally, you know, having trying to figure out where they are to go, Paul has this vision in his sleep of being called across to Macedonia. And after reflecting on that with the others, they conclude that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we're not told here how it was that the spirit stopped them from going where they wanted to go. But it is clear in these few verses that Paul and his companions, that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. They experienced the Spirit's no to them before they came to that point of knowing the Spirit's yes. I think of um, the first time that Marin went to China on a mission trip. It was with her her friend who uh, was trying to organise to to get on, on part of this trip with a team from America. And when she first contacted them, it was very much a, a no. It was very much a case of, you know, we're just an American-based organisation taking Americans across to China. You know, there's, there's not this opportunity there. And yet uh, things changed, you know, and, and, and her, Maren's friend followed it up again. And her comments was, I know that um, the door is closed, but maybe there's a window that's opened. And as it turned out, uh, it was a yes then. And they were able, able to go. There's this experience of the Spirit's no, but also of the Spirit's yes, of doors closing, but also of doors opening. And we know by our own experience that the Spirit leads in such ways. And so we, like Paul, need to be open to the Spirit's leading, whatever direction that might be. And even if it seems like the Spirit is leading us in a direction that we don't think is such a good idea. Because one of the things that I find interesting here is that as they followed the Spirit's leading, Paul and Silas ended up 
severely flogged, thrown in prison, guarded carefully in an inner cell with their feet locked in stocks. Now, most of us, I suspect, would take that as a sign that we had got it wrong. We would take it as a sign that, that the Spirit wasn't, in fact, leading us in this direction, that, that we'd misheard, that we'd discerned wrongly. And that's because we've bought into the, uh, the culture's ethic of ease and of comfort. We think that if God's leading us, it's going to be good and easy. It will be pleasant and enjoyable. But that's not necessarily the case. Talk to the couple who have a clear leading from God to adopt and then experience you know, a teenager who throws in their face, you're not even my real parents. Talk to the guy who moves his family to take up a new job that they really sense is God's will for them, only to lose his job three months later. Talk to the heartbroken young adult who was sure God had led them into a particular relationship only for the other party to be unfaithful to them and to callously dump them. It's not even just those kinds of experiences. Talk to the employee who knows that God's will is to overcome evil with good and yet continues to cop abuse from their boss no matter how nice they are or how well they do their job. Talk to the child or youth who knows that God says to honour your mother and father and to obey your parents, and yet they keep saying no to really good and positive opportunities for them. Talk to the single person who knows that they are free to be devoted to God's work in a way that a married person isn't, and they are active in ministry and they, they love it all, and yet they still ache every time they enter their empty home. All of which to say, the test of the Spirit's leading is not how easy or convenient it is. The test of the Spirit's leading is not how outwardly successful it leads us to be. It's not unreasonable to expect that the Spirit will lead us into hard things. The Spirit will lead us into hardship. I mean, remember Jesus after his, his baptism, was immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. So it's not unreasonable to expect that the Spirit will lead us into hard things because that might be the exact place where God wants us to be. That was certainly, certainly the case with Paul and Silas in our passage today. Because they went where it was hard, because they went where the Spirit led, the message of Jesus came to widely diverse people who would then come together in the church. So they find their way to Philippi, which we're told is a Roman colony. Now, plenty of places where Paul went were Roman colonies, but Philippi is the only one that is identified as such within the book of Acts. In other words, it was a big deal for them. I mean, there are Roman colonies and then there are Roman colonies. And that's the kind that, that Philippi was. There appears not to have been a significant Jewish presence there because there was no synagogue. Paul's usual pattern is to go to the synagogue first, but, but a synagogue required 10 Jewish men to be able to constitute it. And so, uh, but, and so in Philippi, Paul doesn't go there because obviously there, there doesn't appear to be one. Instead, on the Sabbath, he goes by the river 
where he finds a prayer gathering of women. And one of these women is named Lydia. She is presumably single, perhaps widowed, a wealthy Gentile trader who, though not Jewish, was, was a follower of Judaism. And as Paul, Paul brought the message of Jesus to these women, God opened Lydia's heart to respond. And for herself, having received the welcome of God, she then welcomes Paul and his companions into her home. Next in the account is Paul's encounter with a slave woman. Now, in contrast to Lydia and her wealth, this woman owned nothing, not not even herself. Worse, she was possessed by an evil spirit of divination that her owners were then exploiting for their profit. And so though she is declaring that Paul and his friends are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved, Paul was so disturbed, so burdened by her plight, so indignant perhaps at her owners about the way that they were using her, that in the name of Jesus, he cast the spirit out of her. Though still a slave, she is now free in Jesus. And it is assumed too that she became a believer. However, her owners are now without an income source. So they drag Paul and Silas to the town square for judgment. That Their charge against them is not that they've taken our income from us, but their charge is that these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Here we see the importance of being Roman for the Philippians. The result of this is that without a trial, Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten with rods, severely flogged and thrown into prison. And then we read, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I don't know about you, but at about midnight, if that was me, I'd have been groaning and complaining. But they clearly had confidence that despite their hardship, they were walking in the will and the leading of God. John Stott says that instead of cursing men, they prayed, they blessed God. And as they sung and prayed, the other prisoners were listening to them. Or suddenly uh, an earthquake shakes the prison and all the doors fly open and the chains fall off. And the jailer, thinking that his life is forfeit because uh, these prisoners who were his responsibility have all escaped, he looks to take his own life. But he's stopped by Paul who reassures him, it's all right, mate, everyone's still here. Recognising then that a divine hand is at work, he asks Paul and Silas what he needs to do to be saved. And they speak the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And in response, he washes their physical wounds before they wash his spiritual wounds in baptism. And this man too became a believer. This story from Acts 16, or these series of stories, these series of encounters and events, they illustrate that faith is for all, that it's for the rich and the poor, for male and female, for for Jew and for Gentile. And we accept that readily enough. But don't miss the scandal of it for its time. See, Jewish men, the, the heads of their household, would pray each day giving thanks to God that they weren't born a Gentile 
a woman or a slave. And here is Paul, a Jewish man, bringing the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, women, and a slave. Think about that. Think about who you have contempt for. That's a strong word, and it might not sit comfortably with you. If you want to water it down, think about those people who you look down on, who you think less of, who you have contempt for. It might be, you know, especially in the midst of this coronavirus, it might be Chinese people, it might be Muslims, it might be Aboriginals, it might be people who are covered in tattoos, who smoke and drink more than is good for anyone, or who live purely off government payments. It might be Trump supporters, or it might be Biden fans. It could be illegal border crossers, whether that's just people from Melbourne or whether it's people from Vietnam. It doesn't even have to be as extreme as that. It might be someone who's you know, a bit mopey and depressed. It might be someone who wears hats inside, or it might just be someone whose hair is too long or too short. It's these people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. And to push you and myself perhaps even further, thinking about these people who you have a contempt for, what if you find yourself in church with them? Because after Paul and Silas are released, with the city magistrates needing to eat a significant portion of humble pie for treating fellow Roman citizens in such a manner, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters. We have seen two and probably three converts to Christ in this chapter, and these would make up the fledgling church in Philippi. These three, women, slave, Gentiles those who traditionally would be held in contempt by someone like Paul as a Jewish man, these are the very three, these are the very likely among the brothers and sisters that Paul met with at Lydia's house. And notice this too in how it's written in the account. It's not that Paul and Silas met with the believers. It's not that they met with the disciples. It's not that they met with the followers of the way or even that they met with other Christians. It says that they met with the brothers and sisters. They were family. Now, I don't know what your family is like, but looking at mine and Merrin's, our family is, is diverse. There's a mix of genders, of education levels, of income. There's a mix of ages, of relationship statuses, of worldviews. But for all these differences, we come together as family. We stand by each other as family. We have each other's backs as family, more or less. And that's what's going on in this church in Philippi. They were not just a random gathering of people who, who happened to believe the same thing. They were not, you know, fans at a football game who just happened to all go for the same team. They were brothers and sisters. They were family 
in Christ, experiencing radical welcome and inclusion from each other as a manifestation of the radical welcome and inclusion that they had experienced from God. There was nothing to bring them together other than that they were the family of Jesus. There was nothing to bring them together other than the fact that they were each the family of Jesus. Think about the message that that sends to the world. They were then a compelling, attractive community of people pointing to the wonder of the gospel as it was only Jesus who united them as one. As we think about our situation at the moment, church online is easy because you sit at home watching it just with your own family. You don't have to include anyone else. You don't have to welcome and love and care for or look beyond the differences of anyone else. It's just you and your people. That's why neighbourhood churches, and we're really hoping we'll be able to uh, get them going again in, in Victoria soon, but it's why neighbourhood churches are so significant because you've not chosen who is in your gathering. It's just other believers in Christ who happen to live near you. And so it's a mix of people, some of whom you like and naturally get on with and some of whom you don't. But as you come together around Jesus, as you come together as a family, it says something to each of you and to others who might see or hear of it. It says that Jesus is glorious enough and that the gospel is powerful enough to overcome our natural tendencies towards segmentation and division and instead to come and to unite us as the one family in Christ. Listen to this quote from uh, New Testament scholar Don Carson, who, who says it, I think, better than I can. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. He says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together, not because they form a, nat a natural collection, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, the church is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Jesus saves. He extends love and grace to sinners who are his natural enemies, that they might come into his family. And then as family members with each other, the call on us is to continue to show his love and his grace to all. So as we close, I have two simple but significant questions for us to reflect on. Again, something you might share with others who you're, who you're meeting with, something you might journal about, certainly a matter for prayer uh, before God for. The first question, 
is specifically, not, not in genera- generalities, but specifically, who are the people or the types of people in church who you struggle to love? And so secondly then, having identified them, what's a way that you could show love to them for Jesus' sake? It might be simply to pray regularly for them. Or it might be something much more radical, something much more demanding, like inviting them into your home for a meal. But who are the people or the types of people in the church who you struggle to love and what's a way that you could show love to them for Jesus' sake, that you could express your, your unity, your familyness in Christ, regardless of what would naturally keep you apart. So take time to reflect on, on those questions. And as you do so, let, let's pray now that we will be uh, a more lo- that we will be more loving of our neighbors and of our enemies in the church, and that as we do so, we will witness to the gospel. Uh, in such a way that um, that its power, its significance, its transforming effect is all the more evident. May we be a compelling community that clearly points others to Jesus and his great love. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your grace to us. Love and a grace that has reached out to save us who were undeserving, who were naturally your your enemies and opposed to you and distant from you. And yet you loved and you saved. And so we, we thank you for that. May we not lose sight of the wonder of that. May we not fool ourselves or kid ourselves into thinking, you know what, you know, we, we were pretty all right. And of course Jesus would save us. But may, may we always remember... Uh, that we needed your love and your grace to us. And God, may we always remember as well that your love and your grace is not just for this, you know, inner circle of people who are just like us, but that it's for all. You so love the world that you gave your one and only son. And so may we be open to your gospel message going out to others. May we be part of that sharing and uh, proclaiming the good news to people who we might not have a natural affinity for and yet who um, who need to know your love. And then God, practically, as it, as it gets close to home, as we gather as your church, whether that's now or in the future, May we not um, continue to remain in our separate, segregated, you know, like-minded, similar groupings, but may we show the wonder of your love. May we fulfill and obey your commandment to love one another, to love our neighbours as ourselves, to to love our enemies. And may we um, practically do that with one another, that we truly would be one united family in Christ and that as we are so, God, um, your attractiveness, your power, your glorious uh, grace is shown all the clearer and brighter. We pray this, God, and commit ourselves to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.